I'm going to read in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. There's also, there's a parallel text in Luke chapter 14 as well, which we'll, we'll turn to real briefly during our time together this morning. Hear God's words. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants, servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they, made, they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. We have a God who uh, loves to throw parties, to host grand meals to institute feasts for his people. Just think about the history of, of, of the scriptures. Creation is actually an invitation to the feast, to a great feast. In fact, the Trinity decides that they're going to reproduce because of their desire, not because they needed something, that they, they create us because they, they long for there to be others who know about the, the grandeur and the beauty of the other members of the Trinity. And God says that to those he created, he comes and he gives them, does he give them a, a barren desert in which to live with hardly any food? No, when he creates Adam and Eve and he puts man and woman in the garden, he creates for them a terrific home and gave them a terrific bounty for food and drink. Anything they want to eat, anything, all but one tree. And yet, despite that, despite the fact that we had everything, a beautiful and bountiful platter of creation that was there budding in fruit before us, all that we could need and desire, a great invitation into a feast with him for all of eternity, we somehow managed to get kicked out of the party. And yet God calls us back in. In the Old Testament, God gathers a group of people and he takes them out of a land in Egypt and that land, it is going to take him to a new land. It's called the promised land, but he describes that land as what? A land flowing with what? Milk and honey. And if you remember when the spies went into the land and they described the land to the rest of the people, they're amazed and they say, it takes multiple men to carry the clumps of grapes that they're so large, they're so fruitful and bountiful. God loves to feed his people. Just think about what they did for 40 years while they wandered the desert. He feeds them bread. He gave them carbs every day. 
It was awesome. He loves to feed his people. We read Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8, this vision of what it's going to be like when God brings redemption. What's going to happen? Read in the the assurance of pardon this morning, there's going to be a feast with great and perfect wine on top of a mountain. And by the way, when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes to redeem us and save us, what's the first miracle? If you're following the Bible reading plan here at King's Chapel, you're in John chapter 2. And there's this wedding at Cana in which Jesus does what? He takes what with water and he turns it into wine. He makes the best wine. He is the wine maker. He is the feast maker. In fact, what are some of the Jesus' uh, most well-known miracles? He has a time where he feeds 4,000 people, another time where he feeds 5,000 people. Jesus was always eating with people. Most of the scenes, it seems like, from Jesus' life are from feasting. He said, God is like a father. In the most famous of parables, God is like a father whose son insults him and rejects him and runs from him. He squanders his inheritance on wine and women and song. And yet when that son comes back, he doesn't just welcome him. He doesn't just kiss him. What does he do? He throws a huge party. He kills, as we see here, like in this text, the fattened calf and celebrates with them. And the description, what do we see? What's the description of the end of the world? What is the description of what we enter into in heaven? It is called the wedding feast of the Lamb. That heaven will be a bountiful party. Our Father is the great feast giver. Do you know the God who yearns to have you in his party? Is that how you think about God? People will go to the church all their life and never experience the welcome of the Father who invites you into the party. Do you know the big heartedness of your gods? It's like he has an apron on at all times, welcoming us into the kitchen, to the table. There is a God who longs, as it says here, to fill the rooms of heaven up with people who will join him in an everlasting party. One pastor tells a story of, of looking up. He's going to go to the Savannah area for vacation with he and his, with his wife. And so he looked up in some southern magazine, you know, the best restaurants to go to in the Savannah area. And he found this, there's an odd one about 60 miles south of Savannah called the Old School Diner. You get off I-95, you travel for about 20 miles east if you know, that's, that's not a very populated area. You turn into an area with a group of mobile homes sitting amongst a bunch of oak trees, the kind of oak trees with the, the Spanish moss hanging down everywhere. It is romantic and creepy all at the same time. And there in the midst of a mobile home, there is the old school diner. It's a ramshackle place. The yard is covered with carpets. It's all different carpets that have been torn out of various homes, and it covers the whole yards. You getting a picture of this place? You might drive past a place that looks quite somewhat like this every day in Carroll County. This, and all of a sudden, though, as they're wandering into this ramshackle, broken-down-looking place, and they're wondering, what have we gotten ourselves into? Suddenly, a ginormous man, Chef Jerome, comes barreling out the door, and he says, You made it! You made it! My family is here! I saw you driving up, and so I threw the hush puppies in the fryer. And he walked up to the man and the woman, and he gave them both a big, huge bear hug, and he put his arms around them and essentially dragged them into his restaurant. Your family, 
your family. Chef Jerome was a picture of God in that moment. Longing to be the God who will reach out and embrace us, call us family, and bring us into the feast that he has been preparing for us. And you know this, he is inviting you into that feast. There's an invitation. Save the date. The invitations are going out. And so the question is, and the question of this parable is how are you responding to the invitation? How are you responding to the invitation? You know, you know on Facebook, if you go on Facebook, you'll see people have posted an event. And you can, you can go on, the, you can see under the event, you can kind of give different answers. Yes, I'm going. I'm going to be there. And then there's like, interested or maybe. Yeah, okay. I'm interested. Let me know a little bit more about this later. Keep me in the loop. And then there's, this, the, there's the no button. No, I'm not going to that. No, I don't want to go to your Rodan and Fields um, medicine party for my face. I know I don't want to be invited to that. Don't invite me to that. I don't want, I don't want these things. So, so the question is, how are you responding to God's invitation? It's far better than Rodan and Fields. Three responses we see this morning to God's invitation in this parable. The first response is this. The first response is this, is those who object to the invitation. Those who object to the invitation. This is in verses 1 through 7 here at the beginning of the parable. It is a wedding party. That's what's going on. It's a wedding party for the son. It's a king's son. It's a wedding party for a prince. The king has made all the arrangements. He has sent out invitations, right? They have the save the day. It's on the refrigerator. It should be marked on the calendar. And then he sends out his servants the day of the feast when it's all ready. And he says, it's time. It's time. Come into the party. This is a royal invitation. Anybody who received this invitation should have known that they were the, the stuff of the stuff. They were the cream of the cream. I mean, just think, this is the kind of invitation. Remember, this is a king's son. Imagine if you got one of the 1,900 invitations in April 2011 to the marriage between William and Kate. I mean, of all the dignitaries in all the world, of all the wealthy people in England and around Europe, that you got to be one of those special few who got to be into the, go to, into that wedding and go into that feast. That's the kind of invitation we have here. And this is not just a, 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 an invitation to a wedding. It's an invitation to a party. Can you imagine? This is an invitation that should cause you to salivate. You ever, get the, you ever gotten a wedding invitation and they have the description of the various things you get to choose from to eat from? Like, you know, it's always, you know, chicken, no, fish, no, steak. That's what I've been looking for. <laughs> yes, please. Prime rib, yes. This is the kind of invitation that should make you salivate. Can you imagine the food that were going to be served at this drinks? Oh, the drinks. The drinks at this event. It's open and you don't have to pay for it. This is the kind of party that we want to go to. This is not just any feast. Well, understand this, you have been personally invited by the king. Who do you invite to the wedding for your children? Well, you know, if you think about like a parent who gets to invite their kids, I mean, the kids have their friends and they're inviting them. I, anybody who's been married, you know you have to go through this debate. You've got your friends and her friends, and then your parents get to come in and say, hey, we want, could we have a few friends at your wedding? You know, dad comes in, he's like, I'm paying $30,000 for this. Can I have one friend? Just one friend I can stand in the corner with. And so you're, you're just that, like, think how select this invitation is. The father is inviting you to his son's wedding. And yet what happens? They reject it. 
This, I mean, we talked about this in some of the other parables. This is ridiculous. This borders on the insane. No one would reject this. The king is undaunted, though, right? It's the day of the wedding. Despite the, you know, he sends servants and prepared. He says they come back and say, "Hey, they rejected. They're not coming." He says, no, "Go back and tell them what the menu is." We've upped it. No more chicken. We've gotten rid of the chicken. We've moved only to Kobe beef. This is all we're serving at the wedding. It's, it's slaughtered. It's ready to go. Come on, everybody. It's time. It's time. And yet they make excuses. Others make clear, very clear. They don't just make excuses. What do they do? And then one of the most ridiculous things in the world, they kill the messengers. They're only being invited to a party, and they kill them. So who rejects? Who rejects such an invitation? Well, there's, there's two different kinds of people or two different kinds of reactions we see to the, to the invitation to God's feast in this parable. The first is this. We'll go with the second group first. But the second group is the aggressive ones and the destructive. They are far more obvious in their response, right? They don't beat around the bush. They're not passive. They are active. What does it say? They get their hands on the servants and they kill them. Now, let me ask you something. If a messenger comes to invite someone to a party and you're, the response to, is to kill the messenger, what does that say about how you feel about the one inviting you? You hate them. I mean, you're offended that they would invite you to this party. You hate the very notion of spending one second with this king and his son in this party. Now, there's the other folks. And this is the fo- these are the people who are probably far more like you and me. If we were to reject the king's invitation, these are the good, you know, socially adept folks. So it's the, those who, who, there's those who are very obvious in their, in their rejection, but then there's those who are less obvious. It's the inattentive and the distracted. Luke, in his version, talks about and gives more specific uh, directives as to how, who these people were and their excuses that they made. Like one person said, you know, he, get, he had just gotten married and so he couldn't come to the wedding. Another said, hey, I just bought five oxen. And another said, I just got a, a new field. These are designed to be hyperbolic, ridiculous explanations in the text that all the original hearers would have heard this and thought, these are the stupidest excuses. In fact, these are so ridiculous, so outlandish. In other words, they're meant to offend. This is a passive-aggressive rejection of the invitation. This is like saying, um, no, I'm not going to come to your party. I've set aside that afternoon to clip my toenails. That's what they're saying. That I, yes, I so badly don't want to hang out with you that I will choose to do anything else but to spend time with you at your party. And perhaps something is actively aggressive. They show that they too despise the host and that they desire to shame and embarrass the king and his son. In both, you can hear their despising of God's gracious offer, inviting them into the feast. And we talked about this last week. The depths of our hatred of God is shown in the fact that we will reject his grace, that when his grace is offered to us, we despise it. We hate it. Commentator named Robert Capone says this, score a sad point, therefore, for the unhappy truth that the world is full of fools who won't believe a good thing when they hear it. Free grace. It might as well be a 15-foot crocodile the way we respond to it. Despite all our protestations to the contrary, we would sooner accept a God to whom we will be fed than the one who we will be fed by. We would rather have a God who will destroy us than a God who will feed us by his own hand. And what are the consequences of this? We see it. 
The king sends out his soldiers and he puts an end to those who would reject the king's offer. Jesus, this, is, this seems hyperbolic, but it's not how shameful it is. This is a rejection of the king, of his kingdom. This is a shameful act. They've killed his servants. This is an act of war in response to a wedding invitation. Jesus wants to be very clear about this. That when God invites you into his grace, it is not an optional invitation. It is a command. The heavenly banquet is not an option. Everybody in his kingdom gets invited. And therefore, if you reject that invitation, then it means you're not part of his kingdom and therefore you're his enemy. And so we see that while God is patient, he sends the servants over and over again. He is not patient forever. And actually says there at the very end that there are those who will be cast out who have weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are the kind of exact words throughout the New Testament that describe hell. That's what's in view here. So the call of this passage is this, is to say this to us. It is of the utmost foolishness to reject the grace of God. Listen. Listen when God calls you to himself. Listen, the heavenly banquet is not an option. Respond to the call. Pay attention. Parables are often, and this is what's been difficult about them, they are warnings, they are challenges. They are people waving to us saying, hey, hey, wait a second. And to disregard this, you do at your own peril. There's a story, an account from um, December, a December morning in 1984 in south, just south of London. It was one of those incredibly very English foggy mornings, but even more so than normal, a mixture of fog and smog that was causing the cars on the road to put their hazard lights on. They could barely see about a few yards in front of them. And yet, and so on one particular morning, despite the fact that one car had their, 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 their hazard lights on, there was a semi that plowed into another car on the highway. And yet it was so foggy that despite that, because it was so foggy, the other cars couldn't see the accident in front of them. And so what became an enormous pileup, car after car, careening through the fog and crashing into this, making it far worse. And the state, the highway patrolmen came screaming in with their cars and their sirens. In fact, a couple of the patrolmen went running down the road at the highway with light sticks, flashing them, trying to do anything they possibly could to get people to stop. And yet they said it was one, one of the highway patrolmen actually began to weep because every few minutes a car would, cr- would pr- pass them and despite all that they were doing, the car would just speed on by and he said he would be just a few more moments and then he would hear the bone-crushing crash as they couldn't see what was in front of them. There is enormous grace in bringing a warning into your life. That's what the parables are doing. This is what we are doing when we reject the invitation of the king. He is waving the hazard symbols at us and saying, listen, don't reject God's grace. Don't reject God's grace. That's the first response to the invitation. The second response, so you can reject or object to the invitation. The second option we see here is you can be gathered in by the invitation. You can be gathered by the invitation. Verses 9 and 10, I'm actually going to jump over to Luke chapter 14 here in just a second. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Let's get a more descriptive 
from Luke as to what the greater description of what's going on here. He, he says this in the parable in Luke chapter 14, verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and to the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. There are a lot of people who reject the warning signs of this parable. They reject the beauty of God's grace. And yet the main point that we see here in verses 8 through 10 is that ultimately because of God's persistence, because of God's guidance, and because of the power and the compelling nature of God's gospel, that there are those who will come into the banquet. And in fact, what we will see is God's grace will be victorious. The rejection of the kingdom invitation by some does not lead to the canceling of the banquet, does it? Praise be to God. That just because your parents rejected him, that God's grace has been invaded your life and you have been invited and you've been gathered in to the banquets. He is determined, God is determined to have a full place in heaven of people who would receive his grace. And so, yes, if the righteous and the moral and the quote-unquote worthy won't invite, won't in, uh, respond to his call of the gospel, then what will he do? He'll go out to the blind and the lame. He'll go out to the riffraff of society. He will pull them in. There's, there's an old cartoon it is one of those, I think this is one of those, like, I, I got it from one of my dad's old Christian magazines, like, where they've got, like, the, it's like Christian cartoons. And there's one cartoon called What If? And what they, usually what they do is they, 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 they pick up on some incident in the scriptures, and they kind of make a twist on it. And there was, like, what if it went this way? And so there was one that I remember seeing in which there were two women in the early church in Jerusalem. And you may remember from, from Acts that the early Christians were called The Way, and so Peter got into hot water because he went out and he preached the gospel to some Gentiles and they got converted. And so in this cartoon, there's these two Christian women. And, and one of them said to another is, we had quite a refined group going on here in the way until Peter had to go ruin it all and bring in all the riffraff. But this is what God does. That when the moral and the religious elite won't respond to him, he goes out and he finds the riffraff. That's who he wants in the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-28 says this, For consider your calling. Think invitation. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing the things that are. See, the king goes in and gathers in, and he gathers in from the, from the red light districts and from hospitals and mental wards. He says, I am the perfect father and I'm the king, come in. See, it is, there, it is here that we see the glory of the king, the glory of his son, Jesus. He cares, what's it say in Matthew 22? Who comes in? The good and the, the bad. The crippled and the lame and the poor. Philip Yancey, in one of his books, he gives a good snapshot of the kind of thing that this may look like. 
he was on a trip to Nepal and they were there visiting, visiting a physical therapist who was giving Philip uh, and, his, and his wife, whose name is Janet, a tour of a place called Green Pastures Hospital. Now, that's not a good name. Green Pastures, that, that's, that's like, you know, moving to the villages in Florida. It's like, you're over the hill, we're setting you out to pasture. Uh, Green Pastures Hospital, this hospital specialized in leprosy rehab. They were walking along an outdoor corridor, and Yancey says, I noticed in the courtyard one of the ugliest human beings I have ever seen. Her hands were bandaged in gauze. She had deformed stumps where she ought to have had feet, and her face showed the worst ravages of the horrible disease of leprosy. Her nose had shrunken away so that the look at her, you could see straight into her sinus cavity. Her eyes were covered with callus that let no light in. She was totally blind. And scars covered her arms. He said they went and they toured the rest of the hospital and they came back the same way out that they had gone in. They came back through that corridor. In the meantime, he said this creature, as he refers to her, had crawled across the courtyard to the very edge of the walkway, pulling herself along the ground by planting her elbows and dragging her body like a wounded animal. He said, I'm ashamed to say it, that my first thought was that she was going to beg for money. But Yancey said that his wife, who had worked for many years with the disease and the impoverished, had a much more godly reaction. Without hesitation, she bent down to the woman. She put her arms around her, and this tortured woman rested her head against Janet's shoulder and began singing a song in Nepali, a tune that we would all instantly recognize. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The physical therapist said that the lady's name was Demaya. She was one of the most devoted church members at the whole hospital. Most of the, he said, most of our patients are Hindus, but we have a few Christians here in a little Christian church, and every time the church doors are open, she is in there. The glory of Jesus looks at the world, at the highways and the byways. He looks at the Demayas of the world, and he says, I want you to be in my party. I want the poor and the main, those from the streets and the back alleys. I want you to enter my feast for all of eternity, to drink of the best wine, to eat of the best food, to be comforted by my healing. Have you ever thought about the victory of God's grace in a place like heaven? Remember, there was a man, one of the most beautiful parts of my church growing up is we had two men who had spent their whole life in wheelchairs. And the greatest Time, it seems like every time we talked about heaven, the greatest thing that someone would get up and we would have sharing time about how great heaven was, was, man, I cannot wait to play basketball with Sean. Sean couldn't even keep his head up as he reached older age. The disease is the ravaged his body, and yet there will be a day in which he will enter the feast. And you know what? When you feast at a wedding party, you don't just eat really well, do you? You dance. You dance. The incredible, invincible grace of God, he will have his people. And if it means that he has to go to the lowest places of the earth to have them, well, he will go to the lowest places of the earth. And he will do so with delight. So are you gathered in? Third response. There's those who reject or object to the invitation. There's those who are gathered up by the invitation. And lastly, there are those who presume upon the invitation. Man, it would be great if we ended with verse 10. 
And yet then there's a verses 11 through 14 in which there is this odd case where everyone's, I mean, the party's beginning, everybody's moving in, they're on the outer courtyards about to move into the great wedding feast, and they got great clothes, and everything is going to be, you know, they're having kind of pre-dinner drinks, and they're in the courtyard, and they're excited to go into the feast, and then the, the king comes out, and he sees there's this one guy. You see, everyone else, everyone at the wedding is uh, dressed up in their Vera Wang dresses and their Armani suits, but there's this one dude who decided to come in his chacos and blue jeans. And he stands out like a Thor's sum. Now, what did this mean in this culture that this guy wouldn't wear the wedding garments, it says? You see, in ancient times, it was uncommon for people to have more than one outfit. I mean, even for many of you, maybe growing up, you know, if you're like a little bit older than me, you might have had just two outfits. You had the play clothes for Monday through Saturday, and you had the Sunday best dress. And you had, those are your two outfits. Well, back then, they, they usually didn't have even, even more than one And so often, particularly, if you were a wealthy king and you were inviting people to your party, as you would provide them clothes that would be suitable for the occasion, especially when you have to go out to the highways and the byways and bring in the poor and the impoverished. They're lucky to have clothes at all. And so he says he's going to provide them clothes that will make them look and smell right as they come into the party. And then the king comes out, and there's this one guy who sticks out like a Thor sum. And so the king says, how did did this guy get in here? where's, where's, Where's his wedding garments? So when this guy is confronted, he doesn't say, he comes, the king comes up to him and he says, you know, hey, where's where's your clothes, dude? You're not looking so great. And he doesn't say to him, yeah, no, you uppity king, you got to accept me just as I am. Now, what does he say? He says nothing. It says that he was speechless. Now, what does this mean for us? Remember, this is a parable about getting into the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast. The thought of entering into God's wedding supper for all of eternity, we learn by this is that there is a proper way to dress. And there's a proper way to dress to enter into God's wedding, to enter into God's eternal party. Let me put it another way. The thought of entering into the joy of God's kingdom and assuming that who I am just in myself, just me, is, is, you know what? You know what it is? It's presumptuous. And frankly, it's offensive to God. That you would come to God into his wedding party and say, look at, you know, look at my good works. And really, you're just you're kind of wearing nasty, disgusting clothes. Don't I look good for your wedding? And you've got tobacco juice kind of hanging down, you know, spittle on your clothes. And he would go, no. No, this is offensive. You presumed upon my grace. This is a presumptuous to think that God will just accept us when we come in in our, in our, in our shaggy clothes. But we don't think about this in, in you know, any other relationship. Like, imagine if you were to go to any kind of great and powerful event or some other great place, a radically different stratosphere atmosphere than we're used to. For example, when people go up into space, do they just kind of wear you know, street clothes? No, what will happen to you? You will die. If you go into the deepest parts of the ocean... What will happen to you if you're like, yeah, I've got this. I just kind of hold my breath. I'm really good at that. I was an Eagle Scout. Three minutes, right? Or something like that, right? What will happen to you when you move to a different atmosphere? You will die. And if you walk into the presence of a holy God wearing nothing but your own personally provided garments of righteousness, guess what will happen to you? You will die because they are not sufficient. But we think that nothing needs to alter in me. This is so unbelievably presumptuous of us. 
There's a confusion that we have, particularly in the American church today, that because we are invited into the party and it's all of grace, that therefore you just, everyone just has to accept me the way I am. Well, I'm sorry, God actually doesn't accept you the way you are. You might notice this in the gospel. God does some radical transformation upon you. That's what's so good about it. We could ask it this way, and how you would answer this, and how you would walk into the feast. We could ask the question this way, and it's a very famous evangelistic question. If you were to die tonight, and you were to come before God on the day of judgment, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? If you're somebody who's trusting your righteousness, what you're essentially saying is, my clothes, what I've got are enough. That my few good deeds, that my, my few attempts at pleasing you, that was enough. You stand before a perfectly holy, just God. When you understand that, it is laughable. Your good deeds, you will have nothing to say. He says, why should I let you into my heaven? And you will stand there, and at best, you will stammer. You'll most likely be like this guy. You will be speechless. Well, what's the alternative then? What's the alternative? We need to be dressed in a way that pleases the king. Now, this idea of dress... It's actually, just as feasting and invitation is found throughout the scriptures, so this idea of dress is found in the scriptures. What are you wearing before God? Moses talks about this in Genesis. Humans were, were to be utterly known. They were naked before God in the garden and one another. But sin makes us hide. And we falsely covers ourselves with our own efforts. And we see that God re- replaces our false covering with a perfect and true covering. The idea that God actually describes this and talks to this to the people of Israel through the voice of Isaiah. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, he comes to the people of Israel and says this, that all of your righteousness is as filthy rags before me. It's nothing. It's gross. But then, in Isaiah 61, verse 10, what do we need then? The promise of the gospel in Isaiah 61, verse 10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. That's what God's going to do for us in the gospel. To adorn us with his righteousness. If I try to adorn myself with my own righteousness without him, I clothe myself with nothing with excrements. Jesus was perfectly obedient on my behalf. You know what? It's so great about the gospel. It's not just that Jesus came and died for your sins. He didn't come to just die to take away the wrath that you deserved. But he gave you something as well. He didn't come simply and levitate down on Good Friday and die on the cross, be raised from the dead on Sunday. No, he lived a life. Why did he have to live a life? Because he had to develop for you a beautiful dress. It's called the robes of righteousness. It's called the perfect life. And he takes his perfect life. And while he has taken your nasty, disgusting life and he has put it on himself and receives all the wrath that you deserve, what he has done is he has taken his perfect robe of righteousness and he has placed it on you. And therefore, you know what that means? When God looks at you, he sees all the perfect work of Jesus when he looks at you. When you read the Gospels and you see Jesus healing people, and you see Jesus being compassionate to people, when you see him living perfectly and fulfilling the law, you did that. It's on your record. In order to clothe us in that righteousness, it cost him everything. So that he might pay the way 
into the feast for you. And so Jesus finally concludes with this difficult declaration at the very end. You need to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And then he gives us a reminder that if you try, if you try to just be clothed yourself, you're going to get kicked out. You're not going to actually come into the banquet, into the wedding hall. And then he ends after this warning about trying to clothe yourself, showing us our need to be clothed with the wedding garments that only Jesus provides. He then ends with this seemingly controversial, the very best, confusing statement. He says this, many are called, but few are chosen. Now, why would he end with that? that that's not a happy ending, kind of ending to a parable. That, that leaves us scratching our head. He is reminding us of this. He's reminding us of the truthful implication of his gracious invitation that will help keep us from presuming on his grace. Those who presume on the grace of God think that they have been invited to the party because of something that they have brought to the table. And what is he saying? Listen, you brought nothing to the table. In fact, you didn't even bring the ability to respond to the invitation rightly. I not only had to call you, but I had to choose you. I had to gather you. I had to, as it says in Luke chapter 14, I had to compel you by my grace. The king said in verse 8 that those invited were unworthy. And so is his solution to go find the people who are worthy? No. What does it say in verse 10? And the servants went out to the roads and gathers all whom they found, both the bad and the good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. The bad and the good. The bad and the good. That, that's everybody, right? So therefore, here's the question. So some people, some good people respond to the offer of grace, and some people, good people, reject the offer of grace. Some bad people respond to the offer of grace and come into the wedding party, and some bad people don't respond to the offer of grace. In other words, it is saying that there is something about the, it is saying that there is, it is not something about the moral state of those who respond that elicits the response. So why do some good people respond and other good people don't? And why do some bad people respond and other bad people don't? How do you get into the wedding feast of God? Many are called, but few are chosen. See, not only do you have to be invited, not only do you have to be called, but God must do his choosing calling upon your life. How does anyone get into the wedding feast? God must affect it so that when his invitation comes to us, the invitation itself and the graciousness of the invitation itself radically changes us so that we respond rightly to the call. Here's what it says in John chapter 6, verse 44 about this. He says, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That there is a previous act of grace that God must do in our heart for us to respond. Anybody who has experienced the mercy of God, anybody who has come to, to Jesus knows it wasn't your idea to come to him. It was his idea to pursue you. At some point you realize it wasn't you who made the ultimate decision, but you were decided upon. The lyric of the old Christian hymn may put it best. It says this, "'Tis not I that it is not that I did choose thee, for Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. So how do you keep from presuming against the invitation of God? We end with this. Remember two things. 
To keep from presuming upon the invitation of God, remember first that he chose you not because you were good or bad, but simply because he chose you. Think about this, the implications for your security in life. If my wife were to ask me, why do you love me? And my response is, well, you're just so beautiful. And you're just, you're just so smart, and you're just so capable. And those things are true. I would be right to say that. But, but deep down in her, in, inside, it could be, well, what, if, what, what happens when I get old and ugly? What happens if my capacities are taken from me? Will you stay with me then? But if the response is, why do you love me? And the response is, I love you because I love you. Because I love you. And that's never going to change. And it was never about however how good or bad or beautiful or not beautiful you were. It was simply because I placed my affection and my love upon you. It's now suddenly you're in a place of deep security. So remember that. Second thing you remember. Because remember that you don't presume upon God's invitation. Remember this. Because he clothed you. You had no goodness to recommend you. Your righteousness was at, ba- at best a bad joke. The clothes of your life were offensive to God, and so he gave you his son's life, his son's righteousness, his son's beauty. You remember those things, and then as you come towards the Father, you'll find, oh my, good, I'm in, a, I'm in the right place, not presuming upon his grace, becoming humble. Many are called, and wonders of wonders, praise be to God, if you have found yourself, lo and behold, to be a chosen one. Let's pray. Grace and the Father, I pray that we would be a people who... Um, Respond like, like those who hung out on the street corners and the lame and the broken. So God, come and do your work of grace that would change our hearts so that we would see ourselves as we really are. Lord, there are so many of us in this room, and I include myself in this, that we have, like Adam and Eve, sought to clothe ourselves with fig leaves and run around as if fig leaves were wedding dresses. When really, the emperor has no clothes. We are naked, and so by your spirit, would you be like the little child in that old story (laughs) that suddenly spoke up and said, the king has no clothes. Would your spirit reveal that to us? that we're naked and ashamed in your sight, that we are sinful and we have no righteousness to offer. And then in that moment where the devil would seek to crush us with that knowledge, would your grace invade again? And may we hear the voice of the Spirit say, but you're invited. You're washed by the hands of the Spirit. You're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. You're embraced by the Father. And you're invited to the feast. Oh, Spirit of the living God, wash us over and over again with that truth. Man, tomorrow morning, on Monday morning, that we would wake up and say, I mean, I have the delight as sons and as a daughter to sit at the king's table to hear his voice.
Oh, would we embrace that great gift? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.